This is Connected Nation, a podcast focused on all things broadband. From closing the digital divide to improving your internet speeds, we talk technology topics that impact all of us, our families, and our communities. On today's podcast, we talk with former Microsoft executive and Amazon senior vice president, David Risher. Learn why he believes expanding broadband access can positively impact the nation's literacy rates, especially for children in vulnerable populations, and learn about the international program he co-founded 10 years ago that's just recently come to the U.S. I'm Jessica Denson, and this is Connected Nation. I'm Jessica Denson, and today our guest is David Risher, who is the CEO and co-founder of World Reader. Welcome, David. Hey, great to be here, Jessica. We're really excited to talk to you today about what you're doing with World Reader. Um, but I like to really give our audience a little background on each of our guests. And I know I mentioned some hefty titles with Amazon and Microsoft. <laughs> uh, so let's give people an idea of some of your background. Now, those are some pretty interesting places to have worked. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I got really lucky. I, um, I joined Microsoft, which at the time was a fairly small company back in 1991. And, you know, I was a comparative literature major back in university. And so I came from the world of reading to the world of tech and uh, and really got excited about it. That is really interesting that you came from literature to tech. Share how that even happened. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I guess when I look back at my, my own childhood, you know, I, again, lucky is a funny way to say this, but when my mother and dad split up, my mom bought a very early Apple computer to help her start her own business. And, uh, and so I kind of grew up with a computer in my house. We didn't have much money. We had very little, but we had a computer because it's how my mom uh, uh, made her money. And so, so the, the combination of reading, which I've always loved, and tech, which, which helped me out a ton, even back in high school, I had terrible handwriting, so I got better <laughs> grades. <laughs> you know, my teachers could actually read what I was writing because I used a word processor. Anyway, all that kind of came together uh, later in my life, and, um, and, and Microsoft seemed to think it was a, it was a good bet for them to, to take me on. And you really did some pretty uh, innovative things, right? You, you were part of first desktop database products. You, you were part of uh, Microsoft's first internet-based services. Share some of those details. Because, I mean, all of us want to know how these companies got started and what their early days were like. I mean, we just do. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And it was just it was crazy and fun and exhilarating to be there. So Microsoft in the 90s was a pretty different company in some ways. It was run, of course, by Bill Gates, who was this larger-than-life character, and he had this huge vision of a computer on every desktop and in every home. Now, you know, we still haven't quite realized that vision, you know, certainly around the planet, but we're a lot closer today than we were back in 91 when I joined. So I joined to work on a desktop database product, which was called Access. Then, as you mentioned, uh, the internet kind of crashed over us like a tidal wave in 96. And I helped start up an early investor product, Microsoft Investor, back when personal finance on the internet was just sort of a, a weird kind of science experiment. Um, so I, it was really a sort of very lucky uh, set of events where I got to work on some really interesting products uh, and, and really help, uh, you know, get millions of people in the early days um, interested in online on the internet. You know, it, it, it strikes me and um, just to go to the left a little bit or to the side a little bit that I've really heard a lot of conversations recently where they talk about STEM, where also there needs to be creative side to it and bringing creatives together with people with tech backgrounds. Did you see some of that in those early days? I mean, I couldn't agree more with that. I think uh, everyone, as you say, likes to talk about STEM because they think, oh my gosh, the world is, is going more towards technology. But I actually think what's really happening is as the world goes to technology, 
uh, skills like empathy and understanding people become even more important. And, and you can see some of the, as you say, this is a bigger, bigger conversation, but you see some of the impacts of that today in our society when we all were excited about, uh, you know, the role of, of Facebook and other social networks in the early days from almost a technology perspective, bringing people together, but we didn't understand the impact it was going to have on, on empathy and human connection. So I, I actually think the future belongs to people who understand technology, but also can think creatively and, and sort of emotionally in the way that people who tend to be big readers uh, are. I would agree with that and, and uh, give you a hear, hear applause. Um, also, I, I do. I did mention that you were senior vice president with Amazon. And um, am I, are you to blame for my Amazon Prom, Prime account that I now have? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I like to say I, I played a part. I played a part. Um, but, you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny story there. So I left Microsoft. Uh, back in 1996, early 1997, when Amazon was just an online bookstore. And, and now you probably already know enough about me to know what was so exciting to me about that opportunity, going to an organization, very small organization at the time, Amazon, uh, which was only a bookstore using technology to get books into people's hands. And I just thought that combination was just sort of a perfect fit for me. Now, over time, the company's become a bit bigger. Yes. <laughs> Understatement of the year. Yes. <laughs> and and yes, I did have something to do with the early development of, uh, of Prime. At the early days, we called it free super saver shipping. So that just shows how, how long ago. Um, but um, but yeah, that was that was sort of my, my early role. Just so people understand, uh, I did talk to your, your PR team before this, and they said that you grew retail sales from 15 million to 4 billion. Imagine that. <laughs> a billion is a hard number to imagine. So let's not discount just how much impact you had there. Um, let's move on, though, to, to what's going on now. A little more than 10 years ago, you co-founded what's called World Reader. Uh, it was described to me, if you if you allow me for a moment, as, quote, a San Francisco-based global tech nonprofit that uses literacy apps via smartphones to bring high quality books to children's most to the world's most vulnerable children. So, you know, that's the the official what it is, but share a little bit of, about what that really means to you and why you made the shift from for-profit to the nonprofit world really at a time when you're at the top of your game, I would I would suggest. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. That's that's kind of you to say. Um, and, and I was uh, doing well at Amazon uh, when I decided to make this shift. But I will tell you that the same things that attracted me to go to Amazon were um, the same things that I'm excited about today. You know, I'm just I'm just really passionate personally about the power that reading can bring to kids all around the world to almost unlock just enormous potential. I mean, just think about it. So reading, I think, is almost a superpower that we have as a species because it allows us to share ideas over time, over space. It inspires us. You know, it allows us to get out of our own house without even leaving. And, and the world is moving more and more towards, of course, a technology-based world where we're all going to be spending more and more of our time. And so the question that I asked myself uh, about 12 years ago now is, can we use technology? At the time it was Kindles, now it's smartphones, someday it'll be something else. But can we use technology to get a billion kids around the planet reading so that they can have better lives for themselves and for their futures? Now, the, it did start uh, overseas. So explain why you decided to start um, outside the U.S. and then slowly bring it to our national borders. Sure. So 
you know, it, it's actually kind of a, a, a personal story. My wife and our two daughters and I uh, had decided to spend a, an entire year doing something sort of crazy. And that was to travel around the world uh, to about 19 different countries and spend time in each really trying to understand the world from a bunch of different perspectives. This was not at all my growing up, to be clear. I, I grew up you know, <laughs> raised by a single mother. Uh, you know, she would say, we're not poor. It's just, again, we just don't have much money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so, um, consequently, as a kid, my way of exploring the world was through books. But, but you know, I've been lucky. And so we decided to do this, this crazy thing. So we went around the world and did uh, sort of service learning projects as well as um, were our own kids' teachers for a year. At the end of that trip, we found ourselves at an orphanage in Ecuador, a, a young woman's orphanage, girl's orphanage. And we, as we were walking out of the gates at the end of the day, uh, I saw a building with a big padlock on it. I asked the woman who ran the orphanage why the building was locked up. And she said, well, look, that's our library. And I kind of gulped and said, well, what's going on? And she said, the books take forever to get here. They come by boat. By the time they arrive, the books are out of date. Or they were somebody else's sort of junk books, an old you know, encyclopedia from 30 years ago or something like this. And so I'm thinking to myself, that sounds awful. And I, I say, can we take a look inside? And she says, you know, David, I think I've lost the key to that place. And once I heard that and, and thought about my own childhood, you know, growing up and really exploring the world with, with, through reading and looking at my own daughters, each of whom had an early version of the Kindle, uh, again, from my Amazon days, we were using Kindle at the time to read uh, wherever we were you know, in our trip. I just thought, this is nuts. This is nuts. This, this, our future will be more around technology. It's going to be less around cutting trees down and sending books around the world that way. So let's see if we can start a program for the, some of the world's most vulnerable kids. And if it works outside the United States, let's bring it to the U.S. someday. Now that you've done that, you've you've had it around the world, and it's been ten years. Um, yeah. And explain how it works, and then explain how you think you can help tackle literacy in the U.S. Sure. So the the framework we use is we call it ABCD, and <laughs> and and it's it's it just goes like this. The A uh, stands stands for apps. We've developed a set of applications, including one called BookSmart that works even on very low-end phones. One of the real advantages of our doing work in Africa, in India, and all over the world is we've really gotten good at understanding what it takes to get kids reading, and particularly on, on phones, even on some phones which are, which are very sort of you know, rudimentary. They're certainly not the latest iPhone. So that's the A. The B stands for books. Now, so those are digital books, right? So when most people think of books today, they're still thinking paper. But look, it's so much easier to get a book into a child's hand uh, and, to, and to get that child engaged and the parent engaged with the child if it's on the phone. Why? Because we're all spending more and more time on phones. And so that's where kids' eyes are. That's where their attention is. And we want to fight for that attention. We want it to be not just around Snapchat and Facebook and Instagram. We want it to be around reading and learning. And we attach activities to those books and other things that, that make it more, uh, more fun uh, than, than just reading. Which gets me to C. C is for continuous engagement, and that's keeping kids engaged. And that's everything from incentive programs, you know, free gift certificates after you've read a certain amount, um, to notifications reminding you when books are coming out. You know, the same types of things that maybe a Netflix might do to get you interested in a, in a new movie. Um, and D stands for data. And that's important for us to be able to see how much impact we're having, how many millions of kids are reading on our platform, as well as we can give that data back to publishers and to individual readers to show them how they're, how they're making progress. So when you add all that up, 
we've reached about 19 million kids over the last decade. And I mean, man, I hope to get to, you know, 25 million, 30 million, 100 million. I, w- I really want to get to a billion kids because I think that's really how we can unlock so much more of our potential down the road. And why is really now the time to bring it to the U.S.? Well, I mean, COVID, I think, as awful as it has been, it also awakened so many people to the opportunity to think differently about education and, and, and about so much of what we do. You know, and, and, and this has been said many times before, but COVID was sort of an accelerant of a path we were already on. And so now you look at grocery delivery and it's gone from, you know, days to 15 minutes. I just read an article today about how in cities you can get groceries <laughs> in 15 minutes. That's insane. That's, but, it's, but it's not. I mean, it is our future. And so, so, so what COVID, I think, taught us is a lot of learning happens, not just at schools, but at homes. The technology can really play a role not just with students, but also with their parents. Their parents have to be involved in this, um, in this journey as well. And again, that the technology is going to be a, a, a bigger part of our life tomorrow rather than a smaller part. So I think all those things kind of come together. And then you look at the massive inequity that we still have here in the United States. And this is something I think it's so hard for us to get our minds around. But in Appalachia, where we're doing work, along the border, the Texas border, where we're doing work, in the Bronx where we're doing work, in so many cities and rural areas, kids still struggle with the basics of just having you know, a computer in their home, but frankly, much more often than that, it's a phone in their home that works well. That problem is being solved over time, and that's why we're so focused on working you know, where kids are, which is with their phones, in their homes, wherever they are, even if they're in a very vulnerable community. Yeah, I would think at this recording, um, one of the prime examples of uh, the fact that there's an awareness of it like never before is the infrastructure bill that was just passed. It included $65 billion in broadband-related funding. There's there there's an awareness. I don't have to explain to journalists anymore why access matters. Um, mm-hmm. Your team told me that you've been a longtime advocate for expanding access. Uh, did you really make that connection early on? to the need for for better access? Uh, why was it that you really were down that path already? We did. This was something we, we started thinking about in 2010. And, and the way we thought about it now, just as today, is, you know, it's, it's the, the internet, and in particular broadband, it's almost like physical plumbing to your house. You know, we, we, you would never consider building a house without pipes to it. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> You know, it doesn't make any sense. And so, so, so the, the and, and you, so you know that that's going to happen over time. It might take a long time. It might take a short time. This infrastructure bill is going to dramatically accelerate that for that last, you know, 20 or 30% of the U.S. that still doesn't even have the pipe, or if it's got the pipe, can't afford to pay for the water. And by the way, in this analogy, we're sort of the water, right? We're the ones providing the content, the books, the activities, the learning materials, the things that make that pipe interesting. You know, no one wants an empty pipe. They want a pipe with good <laughs> things to it. And so, right, so that, that's sort of the analogy that we've been thinking about for the last, you know, 10 years. And we're just thrilled that it's, it's really coming to pass here in the U.S., even for populations and, and, and communities that have really struggled and, and threatened to be left behind without a measure like this. Yeah, if I may quote um, some stats from a recent Pew Research study, uh, 27% of adults living in households earning less than 30000 a year, which I can't imagine living on just that, but our smartphone-only internet users mean they do not have an inter- broadband connection. Compare that to adult, adults earning over a hundred k a year, and 93% of them have that access, and they have multiple devices, such as a laptop, tablet, smartphone. The reason I bring this up is because by that token, when I was reading about 
world reader, um, I just couldn't help but be struck that it, in a way it can help level the playing field a bit more by giving those kids access to the, to what you're talking about. Do you feel that? Have you seen examples of that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's a, it's really worth, I think, reflecting on, you know, what you just said, what, what that tells us is that, that access is more or less a solved problem if you have money, but Mm -hmm. if you do not have money, you know, you're still at the, at the starting line. Now, the great news is that this, this infrastructure bill at least allows you to envision a finish line when you can, you can, you can, you can get there. But the, but the other piece, and this is a little subtle is you do already have at least a tool. You probably have a smartphone. You know, I was, I was talking to the, the CEO of the boys and girls club, the national boys and girls club organization. And he said, one of the things they learned over this COVID time is you cannot yet depend on people having computers or broadband internet access in their home. You can't. And, and you just said why, mm-hmm. you know, particularly if you're, if you're a poor, you, you, you probably don't. But you can almost entirely depend even today on people having a capable phone in their house and, and some you know, access to, to the internet that way. So I think this gives us an opportunity. And here's what we've seen. We've seen in Appalachia, where now we've been working here in the U.S. for just about a year in West Virginia, Barbara County, West Virginia, to be specific, we've seen kids there come to after-school reading groups with their phones, and all of a sudden, their eyes light up because they're like, wait, I can actually use my phone for something kind of educational and fun. And I know that sounds funny, educational and fun, but these are kids who are desperate, desperate to learn about a bigger world than the one that they typically see day to day. And so in the books that we have in our program, by the way, these books come from Africa, India, the Middle East, because a lot of the work we've done over the years has been there. And so they're reading about kids halfway around the world. You know, They're saying things like, this is like a low cost ticket to see the world. So Anyway, I know that was that was a lot to sort of take in, but I just I think that the opportunity is so significant right now because finally, as you say, no one has to be convinced of the importance of this. It's just we gotta we gotta get to work making sure they've got great content uh, and that even today they don't they know they don't have to wait uh, for you know for for a broadband pipe to get to their house in the next couple of years. They can actually start already today. So, how does it, a child in Appalachia or anywhere in the U.S. where it's whether it's a tribal nation or or Alaska yeah. or you know just wherever they may be, how would they access World Reader themselves? Sure. So the easiest way today is to go uh, type in bebooksmart.com, bebooksmart.com into your uh, phone, and on just about any phone you use, whether it's a high end phone or a low end phone, as long as you've got some connection to the internet through your phone company, uh, an app will pop up. It'll then have, uh, you know, hundreds of books from around the world and it'll have a book a week. And I'll tell you just a little story about something that's happening right now on the borders of Texas. Um, We have kids there who are uh, young, ages 10 to 14, and um, they're in uh, sites, in, in, in sort of detainment sites and refugee sites and so forth. Kids coming across the border or even kids who've come across the border are being uh, held there. And we just got a note from one of them last week. It was actually a, one of our, our staff uh, told us this, where she said the boys there in particular who have no control over their lives, no control over their lives, are now using Booksmart to choose books that they want to read. And one of them said to one of our, our people there, uh, it's one of the most comforting times of the day because they can actually pick a book that they want to read themselves uh, right on their phone. Oh, gosh. That just has to make you feel like the work is is worth it. Yeah. Because I'm sure you've put in a lot of hours and days and time in this. <laughs> um, you just made me tear Absolutely. up. 
uh, I can just think of this kid who just wants to read a book and have a, a moment of choice in his life. That's, that's a beautiful thing. Um, speaking of beautiful things in your perfect world, what would you like to see take place? What should kids have access to? I mean, I think if you, if you roll the, the calendar forward, you know, two years, five years, 10 years, again, I don't think we have to guess a lot about whether kids are going to be spending more and more time uh, online and, and, and connected to, to phones and devices. That's just the world we live in. Um, that train has left the station. So what I'd like to see is that a real percentage of their day be spent not just, you know, playing games, not just... Uh, you know, kind of goofing off and doing the things that, that, that people do, but also recognizing that if they become readers in the way that people have been encouraging folks to do for years with paper books, but now you can do it digitally right in your own pocket with hundreds of books, not just one or two. If you become a reader, you will have a better future. You'll make more money as, as in professional life. You'll have more empathy. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll be more curious and, and, and a critical thinker of the world. And that that's and that so that's the future I'd like to help us all, um, you know, bring into focus is that, you know, 10 years from now, a billion more people are reading on this planet all over the world, including here in the U.S., because they see the opportunity and we've helped them see it. I, I love to read as well. So I, I, I echo what you say. And um, I would be remiss, and I did not have this among my questions, so I'm throwing this one out at you. I would be remiss mm -hmm. if I did not ask you what your favorite book is. <laughs> Oh man. Uh, you know what? This is such a hard question for me because my favorite book almost always turns out to be, you know, the most recent book I've read. Yeah, yeah I relate. <laughs> I don't know why that is. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll give you uh, an example of a book I just recently read. This is, it's sort of funny, but it's a book about um, Elon Musk and his, the space race. And uh, it's called Liftoff. And it's all about how incredibly hard he had to work to convince the world and his staff that, you know, building a whole new rocket company from scratch uh, was, um, uh, you know, was, was possible. And now look, I think, you know, just in the last, you know, few days, uh, you know, we've seen, you know, more of the crew splash down from, from rockets that Elon Musk uh, built. So look, he's, he's a, he's a curious character, but I will tell you when you read about Elon Musk, one of the things you always read is how much of a big reader he is himself. And so I find that, uh, uh, you know, pretty inspired. Well, that's a good one. I, I wrote that down, lift off. I'll have to, I'll have to look at that. <laughs> um, so I just, I like to give all my guests a chance to add any final thoughts or something that you thought I should have talked about, or we should have touched on that you'd like to bring up that maybe I didn't. I mean, I, I guess my only thought is I really think we are at a moment of time right now as a society where we can feel ourselves you know, almost being held back by human capacity. What do I mean by that? So many organizations are trying to hire people. There's so many great ideas out in the world. There's so many big problems to solve, you know, climate change or whatever, whatever, you know, worries you, you know, a lot or keeps you up at night. All of those opportunities to solve problems and, you know, future planetary exploration, again, whatever, whatever gets you excited, they're all going to be solved by people. And a lot of those people right now are, three years old, five years old, five, 10 years old, you know, who some year are going to be 20 and 25 and 30 and 35, and they're going to be the ones solving the problem. The only way we can equip them is if they've got a great education and reading is right at the foundation of that. And they're all going to have phones. So it's like all the pieces are in place now. All the pieces are in place now. <laughs> 
And, um, and the only thing holding you know us back as an organization, frankly, and it's like so many nonprofits is, you know, more funding, more exposure, more people shining a light on this and saying, man, man, I want to help and I want to see these guys succeed because I think they've got a chance at, at changing the world. So to the extent your listeners, um, you know, want to help us, man, come to our website at worldreader.org, you know, make a contribution, reach out to us, let us know how you can bring our programs to your communities. I, I really think it'll change an entire generation if we do this right. Well, I am um, excited. It's hard to not be excited about it when you talk about it, David. So thank you so much for joining us today and sharing what you're doing to help kids around the world. For sure. Thank you, Jessica. I really enjoyed it. Again, our guest today has been David Risher, who is the CEO and co-founder of World Reader. I'll include links to World Reader and other key items in the description of this podcast. I'm Jessica Denson. Thanks for listening to Connected Nation. If you like our show and want to know more, head to connectednation.org or look for our latest episodes on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Pandora, or Spotify.